I am an expository preacher. Sounds like I'm admitting a problem, doesn't it? Hi, my name is Dan. I'm an expository preacher. Hi, Dan. <laughs> In expository preaching, the point of a scripture passage is to become the point of the sermon. Expository preaching rises out of the belief that it is God who transforms us by his revealed word. Therefore, the preacher is to do nothing more and nothing less than to proclaim God's word. Expository preaching is distinct from topical preaching in which the, the preacher picks a topic to speak about and then may or may not draw scripture passages into his message, perhaps even using passages out of context. Our topical teaching, rightly done, can be helpful teaching uh, theology that seeks to see what the whole Bible says about a particular topic. And so topical teaching in a variety of settings is a good thing. Sunday school, conferences, books, talks are good forums for teaching various topics. But the pulpit is the place for expository exaltation. The point of the passage becomes the point of the sermon. Well, this year, as we walk through the book of Numbers, or Midbar in the wilderness, its Hebrew title, the point of each chapter has been the point of each sermon. This morning, however, we're going to take a moment to see a particular point that rises from looking at the whole book. It's called an excursus, a discussion about a particular point in the book of Numbers. We've already done this twice, seeing Christ in Israel's worship. On February 18th, we looked at sacred space, particularly how it was revealed in those first seven chapters of the book with the setting up of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Sacred space for Israel's worship points us to Christ and the sacred space for our worship. And then on Easter Sunday, we looked at the sacred activities of worship, particularly as revealed in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. The worship activities at the tabernacle points to Christ and our sacred activities for worship. And so this morning, we're going to look at sacred people, particularly as revealed in these first 18 chapters, in the Levitical priests and Aaron as the high priest, and how they point to Christ and affect our worship, and in fact, all of our life. We have, of course, already touched on the priests here and there where it has been the main point of various chapters, but this morning, we get to take a big picture view by connecting together some of the things that have been seen throughout. If that sounds boring, and it probably does, let me ask the question this way. Are some people more holy than others? The answer is yes and no. Understanding that answer and understanding the question has huge application for us today. That we might hear it and see it before we read it. Let's go to the author in prayer. Our Lord God, we love that you speak to us. That you are not a God who is distant or silent, but is a God who desires to be known. And so it is that throughout the ages you have revealed yourself and we now have the fullness of this revelation and is so readily accessible to us. 
But in order to receive your, receive your revelation as your revelation, we need you to do a work. We need you to be present. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and bear witness to the reading and the proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher in the pulpit and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, you have made him able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, obviously, we're not going to read or reread all 18 chapters, but going to grab some highlights and interpret them, especially through the lens of our New Testament reading from Hebrews 4 and 5. And before we can really do that, we first need to get our heads wrapped around the concept of sacred. As we talk about sacred space and sacred activities and then sacred people, what do we mean by sacred? It's especially hard for us to conceive of a sense of sacred because our modern world has a strong sense of individualism and the idea that everyone is equal. Now, understood rightly, individualism and equality are good things, but they have certainly been taken to an unbiblical and therefore unhealthy extreme. And so we see in our world that many people struggle with identity issues. Overcommitment to the individual self means we lose sense of community. And it means that we lose sense that the world doesn't revolve around me. Overcommitment to equality means we lose the sense of authority, of structure, and of people having distinct roles. And trying to understand that equality does not mean sameness. In college, I I was at a secular college and I had a class on the psychology of gender differences. How's that for class? The psychology of gender differences. And the professor's thesis is that there were no essential differences between men and women. Yeah, she and I didn't see eye to eye on that. Her brand of feminism wanted to make men and women equal by saying that they were essentially the same, by saying that there are no essential differences between men and women. But men and women are different, and that's a good thing. I'm a big fan of the differences in women, right? The problem, of course, is when women are treated as lesser human beings. That is unbiblical. That is unacceptable. People can be different and still be equal, which is good because we are. And so to think about this a little bit better, let's consider what we saw before in terms of sacred space. The Israelites are Bemidbar. They are in the wilderness. They're living in the desert. But then the glory cloud, the physical manifestation of God's presence, descends right in their midst, right there in the desert, and suddenly that place becomes holy. And then they pack up the tabernacle and they move on to another part of the desert. And the part that they leave behind is no longer sacred space. And the part where they now go becomes sacred space as God descends upon them again. And in each of those places, Moses and Aaron anointed the space. And they anointed the items that were in that space. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. So Moses messiahed the space so that it is that worship centers on the Messiah, centers upon the lamb who was slain, focuses on the God who meets with us because of his atoning sacrifice. And so Jesus is our sacred space. The word became flesh 
and tabernacled among us. And the Holy Spirit creates sacred space in us. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And we are temples then not only personally, but also corporately. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so there are spaces that are created for particular activities. An ice rink does not work very well as a space for playing basketball, right? A swimming pool is not a very good space for cooking dinner. And the kitchen is not a very good place for playing Legos. Ouch, right? Yes? So sometimes space is clearly created for particular activities. And space is made sacred by the presence of God for those particular activities. Certain space is more holy, not in that it is better, but that God is present and it is being used according to its design purpose. The desert was still the desert and not a better place than others. Worse, actually, which is much of the point. It was made sacred by God's presence and by being used for God's purposes. Think the same way in terms of sacred activities of worship. Worship that is not designed for our entertainment, but for God's glory. Activities that may not be our favorite things to do. They may not be easy and fun, but they are sacred because of God's presence and God's purpose. The sacred activities of worship, also known as the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer. And so it is that the word is read and proclaimed. It's sung and affirmed. Prayers are spoken and sung by the worship leaders and by the congregation together. And Jesus Christ and all his benefits are spiritually present. The covenant of grace signified and sealed as we participate in the sacrament by faith. And so just reading the words of the Bible or saying the words of a prayer or simply eating bread and drinking from the cup are hollow activities if they are not done by faith in Christ. Hollow activities become hallowed activities. They become sacred activities by God's presence when done according to God's purposes by faith. And so some space and some activities are more sacred than others by God's presence and purpose, but not necessarily because there is something physically better about them. It is similar to sacred people. The Levites, Moses, Aaron were more sacred in that they carried out specific God-designed purposes by his presence. But they were not physically, morally, or spiritually better than the rest of the nation of Israel. In fact, we saw a group of Levites lead a rebellion that led to the death of nearly 15,000 people. The Levites were not more loved by God. They were not smarter, cuter, or more talented, but they were simply set apart for special service to the Lord. And so one of the principles that came forth from the Protestant Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. And in order to understand and apply this correctly, we first need to see what the book of Numbers tells us about the priesthood of some believers. Throughout the book of Numbers, specific people are called to carry out specific duties. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, of the book of Numbers, the very first thing that Moses is commanded to do is to take a census. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord says to Moses, one man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. And then 12 individuals are named as these helpers. 
these helpers were not census experts. We're not told that they possessed any special skill set. They were simply called by God, chosen for this task. And then if you go to chapter 3, it's where we are told that God formed the 13th tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, to be priests for Israel. And there were three divisions of the Levites named for the three sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And they're given particular duties with regard to the care of the tabernacle, as well as for the packing up and the carrying of the tabernacle from place to place. They were not chosen because they were especially skilled at packing and carrying things. It was simply their assigned task. And then if you go forward to chapter 7, it's the recounting of the 12 days of Christmas, right? The 12 days that the 12 tribes brought their offerings at the dedication of the tabernacle. And each tribe has one person who's named who represented the whole tribe presenting the actual offering on behalf of that tribe. It's similar to something that we do perhaps at Christmas time when a group of people go together on a gift. Maybe siblings buy a gift and present together uh, to their mother or uh, a group of co-workers go in together on a gift to give to a boss. But one person represents the group in actually handing the gift over. And so chapter 7 names the 12 individuals who actually present the offering representing the whole tribe. In the Thanksgiving portion of our worship service, as we present our tithes and offerings together, we also have a musical offering. And we say that the choir or the individual or the ensemble represents us as that musical offering is given in Thanksgiving on us together. And then you go forward to chapter 10, and the Israelites finally begin the march. And individual names are given of those who are in command of the tribal divisions. Because God is the God of order. And so having particular people filling particular roles is part of good order for carrying out the work of the whole community. And then chapter 11, as the people grumbled about not having meat to eat, Moses was overwhelmed with the burden of leading the people. And so the Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders. They will help you carry the burden of people so that you will not have to carry it alone. And those 70 elders became the first session of the first Presbyterian church of the Israelites in the desert, right? In chapter 13, we read about 12 men who were sent to explore the land of Canaan. We're told that it was from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders, Those leaders were not those who had the greatest faith in God. In fact, 10 men come back with a report filled with unbelief, lack of faith, which led to a rebellion among the people. And then chapter 16 recounts another rebellion led by 250 well-known community leaders incited by named Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then chapter 17, following Korah's rebellion against Aaron, is God's clear calling of Aaron as the God-appointed high priest, similar to what we saw in chapter 12, that Miriam's opposition to Moses was answered by God's clear calling of Moses as the God-appointed leader. And so specific people carry out specific duties, not because they are physically, morally, or spiritually superior, 
but God simply calls them to carry out those tasks. So it is that also there are specific duties for the specific people known as the priests. These people and their duties were particularly sacred. Again, not because the Levites themselves were better, but because it was a special work. Their work was to serve as mediators between God and the people. And so they even camped between God residing in the tabernacle and the people camped outside of them. Their work as mediator also involved guarding the tabernacle to make sure that no unauthorized personnel approached the tabernacle that would bring God's wrath upon the whole community. Indeed, it's rightly said that with great privilege comes great responsibility. And that was certainly true of the Levites. In chapter 18, we saw last week that the Lord said to Aaron, you, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary. You and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the priesthood. Aaron is the high priest, and the Levites as the priestly tribe were the lightning rods for God's wrath. They were held responsible for the offenses against the sanctuary and against the priesthood, even if the actual offense was committed by the community. And it is here that we most clearly see Christ as our great and final high priest. Jesus Christ is the lightning rod of God's wrath, that he takes upon himself all the responsibility for our offenses. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that it is that where we see God's wrath and plagues that are poured out on the community, that is not the case for us because God has poured out his wrath. He's poured out the plague on Christ himself. And yet Moses and Aaron were not perfect. The Levitical priests were certainly not perfect. But Jesus was perfect in every way. And so as we read earlier in the service from Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus Christ fulfilled the role of lightning rod to God's wrath. He satisfied divine justice so that we no longer need any other mediator. As Paul wrote to, Tim- to Timothy, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the person Jesus Christ. And then the opening verses of Hebrews 5 tell us the important point that no one takes the honor of being high priest upon himself, but must be called by God. Just as Aaron was, so Christ did not take upon himself the glory of being a high priest. Christ is appointed to this duty as a work of the triune God. So it is that also earlier in the service, we affirm what the Bible teaches about Christ fulfilling the three offices of prophet, priest, and king as our redeemer. That particularly as Christ, he executes the office of a priest in offering up himself sacrifice once to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And so it is because of this that we can finally talk about the priesthood of all believers. So here we go. God originally called the whole nation of Israel to be a priesthood, a whole nation of priests. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. 
Exodus 19.6, God says, although the whole earth is mine, you, nation of Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And there is a measure then in which Korah was right at the outset of his rebellion in chapter 16, verse 3, when he says, the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. It is true to a measure that the whole community was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the priestly institution was needed because the sin of the people had not been fully dealt with. And in fact, Exodus 19 makes that point in the end. And it's where Korah was wrong. Korah thought everybody could still be priestly mediators and did not comprehend that Aaron was chosen as high priest and the Levites all had their appointed place. So that Aaron as high priest and the Levites as the priestly tribe are put in place by God to deal with the sins of the community so then that the whole community may be able to fulfill their various callings. The problem, of course, is that Aaron and the Levites are themselves sinners. Atonement needs to be made for them even as they make atonement for the sins of the community. But Jesus is sinless. Jesus, as the sinless one, is able to, com- to complete uh, our, uh, that work, to be the perfect and complete and eternal high priest. And so 1 Peter 2.9, uh, Peter uses the same words for the church of Jesus Christ that were used for the nation of Israel. Peter says, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's talking to us. We are the holy nation. We are the new Israel. In the words of the apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians, we are the Israel of God. We are now the kingdom of priests, the holy nation, and we are able to serve as that kingdom of priests because the great high priest Jesus has completed the atoning sacrifice work. And so that Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther rightly taught that all who are Christians are priests. No one believer has greater or lesser access to the throne of grace. No one believer has greater or lesser access to God than any other believer because it is through Jesus Christ and through Christ alone that we have access to that throne of grace. At social functions, as a pastor, I'm often asked to pray. And some people, only half-joking, I think, ask me to pray because they say, God must really listen to you because you're the pastor. The truth is that God doesn't listen to me any more or any less. My prayers go to the throne of grace the same as every other believer, equally through Jesus Christ. James wrote, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, but no one believer is more righteous than the other. Our righteousness is imputed to us by Jesus Christ, so that God looks upon us and says, you are perfectly righteous in my sight because of Christ's righteousness credited to you. John Calvin then emphasized that the priesthood of all believers means that the church together fulfills the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. That we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, proclaiming God's word, 
praying with and for the world and building the kingdom of Christ as we apply the gospel to every aspect of life and existence. And so the priesthood of all believers is not an invitation to sit back and relax and go, well, thank God Jesus saved me. We'll just have to wait for him to come back. No, it's a clarion call, a great commission for us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so the priesthood of all believers means that all honorable vocations are sacred vocations. Pastoral ministry is not more sacred or more holy than the vocation of a teacher, a student, a store clerk, engineer, welder, secretary, doctor, nurse, manager, laborer, or parent. Your vocation is your calling from the Lord. It is your priesthood as you do it according to God's presence and fulfilling God's purposes. As such, not all people are called to all vocations. There are limits and restrictions on vocations. The Lord has put obvious limits on certain vocations, uh, certainly limits on the vocations of pastor, elder, and deacon, but he's put certain limits on most other vocations. And so in our modern world with its identity crisis, people are wrongly told that they can be anything they want to be. That's not true. A man cannot be a woman. A woman cannot be a man. A 50-year-old cannot be a 15-year-old. An 8-year-old cannot parent themselves. We cannot be whoever we want to be. We must be whoever God wills us to be. And by faith in Christ, we will be who God wills us to be. And may that truth set us free to be that and do that.